take a look at a few slides. Uh, this is a Jewish soldier at, uh, we call it the Wailing Wall. They call it the Western Wall. And he's in military garb, as you could see. He's pretty much on duty. And what he has, uh, those straps are called on his arm and kind of a box on his head. Those are called phylacteries. You read about them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the word of God. You shall bind it on your heart, and it should be between your eyes and stuff like that. Anyway, we Jewish people have made a custom out of that and have come up with these phylacteries, and you put them on and so on and so forth. So this is, this is a Jewish guy, and he's a practitioner of Judaism. So we saw lots of that in, in the land of Israel. And then here are some... Uh, Muslim ladies, uh, very discreet Muslim ladies. There are many, many different kinds of Muslim people because they come from all over the world and are there in, in the Holy Land. And so these ladies um, are, are, are revealing only their eyes, as you could see. They're very devout uh, Muslim ladies, and they're practicing with great passion and devotion uh, the religion of Islam. And then here's... Uh, a little photo of uh, some Russian Orthodox clergy during a procession. There are all kinds of um, strains of Christianity there, this being one, Russian Orthodox vestments and uh, very elaborate processionals, quite beautiful. And uh, so they're practicing Russian Orthodoxy right there in Jerusalem. And then here uh, is a picture of some Druze men, Druze, D-R-U-Z-E. It's a very interesting and mysterious religious group. Um, they hail from Egypt. They split off from Islam 1,000 years ago. They're hated by Muslim people, the Druze. Uh, their religion is uh, uh, no longer adheres to the Koran. Uh, it's a very secret religion. In fact, uh, in the Druze community, we were in the third largest in the world, um, in the Mount Carmel area here in Israel. Um, only 10% of the Druze are religious people, and that is to say, entrusted with the secrets of their religion. And they're easily identifiable by their garb. So these two men are, uh, are, are religious Druze. Interestingly, only 10%, as I mentioned, of the Druze population are entrusted with the secrets of their religion. And of the 10%, 70% are women and 30% are men. So in the Druze community, uh, when you see someone in religious garb, seven out of 10 times, it's, it's going to be a woman. A lot of interesting customs. Uh, perhaps you've seen men sometimes with long mustaches and hats like this and very... Uh, uh, unusually baggy pants, kind of look like MC Hammer. Remember MC Hammer? I didn't say that over there, but I was thinking about it all the time. And um, men wear these pants, and here's the reason why. I'm not lying. Uh, they believe one of them is going to birth the Messiah. One of the men is going to birth the Messiah. And when they literally birth the Messiah, he will descend from their loins and be caught up in their um, comfortable, uh, spacious pants designed to receive the baby Messiah. I'm not kidding you. Uh, folks, there's a lot of religion in the land. It's a very closed religion, and it's very threatening. Uh, conversion efforts can be quite uh, dangerous. 
And over the years, the group we work with over there has won the hearts of these people. And they, uh, you can ask any of, there's Brian over there. You can ask any of our folks. Um, um, and uh, we're, we're, we're just invited in now like, like it's home. Uh, one of the projects we did was to be in a widow's home. She lost her husband just a month ago. She was dressed in, in black and didn't speak much English. And we, we painted her home inside. We cleaned up some rooms. And she knew exactly who we were. And, and Patty got beautiful pictures. Uh, by the way, thank you for your note today. But I got, we're just having a private conversation. I hope it's okay. Um, I got a beautiful picture of her st stroking your 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 cheek. This is very unusual. Touch is not a very common thing over there, and she really took to Patty and our whole group. And but anyway, so the Druze religion is there in the land, and then uh, here's a picture of uh, a Greek Orthodox a procession. I showed you a Russian Orthodox. This is Greek Orthodox. Uh, so uh, you know from Greece and very much um, present in the Holy Land. This is in. In Jerusalem, and they're practicing with zeal uh, their uh, strain of Christianity. And then here's an interesting group of people. They're called Samaritans. Have you heard of the Good Samaritan? I mean, these are real people. It's a group, and they live in Samaria. Have you heard of the West Bank? Well, it's ancient Judea and Samaria. The Samaritans are a group of people who were brought to Israel centuries ago, pretty much against their will, non-Jews. But then the Jewish priests decided they need a Jewish education. And the Samaritans really took to Judaism to the extent that they considered themselves to be Jewish. In fact, they went to Jerusalem to the temple that stood there at the time of the Lord, and they wanted to enter and participate as Jews. But the real Jews said, you're not Jews. You can't enter the temple. You're, you're kind of um, a hybrid race. Well, the Samaritans didn't take too kindly to this, as you could imagine. And so they erected their own temple in opposition to the one standing in Jerusalem. And the Bible says they erected it on a place called Mount Gerizim. We were there. This is Mount Gerizim, and these are Samaritan priests and others, uh, and th they erected an ancient temple over there. They, they believe they're Jewish people, and they practice uh, animal sacrifice uh, today. They do not believe that the Lord has uh, satisfied uh, the debt for our sin, and this is one of the first contacts we had actually with the Samaritans there in the Holy Land, so that's another religious group. And then here are some... Uh, Catholic monks at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in Jerusalem. It was erected by Helena, who was the mother of Constantine, emperor of uh, the Byzantine Empire, uh, whose capital was established in Istanbul or Constant Constantinople, Turkey. So Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire. That's a terrible thing. When you mandate people become Christians... They ain't. You can't force. You, you, you invite people to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be a move of his spirit and the exercise of their free will. You can't impose Christianity on anybody. That's not what we do. That's what cult groups do. 
So anyway, uh, Constantine imposed Christianity on his empire, and his, his mother, Helena, went to the Holy Land. She got thrilled about being there, put a church on every spot she thought was a biblically significant one. She thought this is the site of the Lord's uh, death, burial, and resurrection, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So here are Catholic mon monks at this church. By the way, the church is divided into six different religious groups. It's turf wars. I'm not lying to you. There are Coptic Christians there on the roof. They're Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syriac Christians, all the rest. In fact, sometimes they have fights, even fist fights. I'm not lying to you. In fact, there is a ladder there. We didn't get a chance to see it, but there is a ladder there on a ledge on the outside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was set up by one of the religious groups mistakenly to clean the window of another one. They had a big fight. They can't decide who's responsible for removing the ladder. It's been there for decades. I'm not lying to you. It's It's... It's, yeah. All right. Religion. And here are, uh, here's a photo of uh, very devout Muslim worshipers at a place called the Dome of the Rock. You've seen pictures of this golden-domed, quite beautiful building. Um, it's thought to be the place from which uh, Muhammad ascended on a, a white horse into heaven. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I do think it's the location. It's Mount Moriah where uh, Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac in sacrifice right on that site. By the way, the Quran teaches not that Abraham was offering up Isaac, but that he was offering up Ishmael. Read the Quran. I mean, don't read the Quran. You just take my word for it. Uh, you know, so the Bible says it was Isaac who was being offered up. And uh, the Quran says, no, it was Ishmael. So, anyway, so these are devout Muslim worshipers right there. That's the site on which the uh, temple, Solomon's temple was built, the temple in which the Lord um, taught, and so on and so forth. And then one final picture. These are Jews. They're called Hasidic Jews. Ch Hasidic is a good word to when you want to clear your throat. You go, <laughs> it's really so... Yeah, Hasidic Jews. And they're ultra-Orthodox. They're like a sect of Jews, and you see their garb. It's, it, it comes from Eastern Europe um, a long time ago, and it's a, uh, it's a statement of separation and sanctification and being set apart. And you see the long curls that they're wearing and their garbs. They're, it's almost like a robe like you would wear at night before bed. That's the idea, because when they come to this place, the wailing wall, you're supposed to do it in a relaxed fashion, not in haste. So they wear sometimes even slippers that look like bedroom, bedroom slippers. So, so here's the deal. Quite a, quite a mosaic of religiosity in the Holy Land. Quite a diversity. Uh, they have pretty much nothing in common, none of these people groups, uh, but for this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't know if they realize that, but every one of the groups we just typified before you in pictures, that verse in Romans is true. It applies to everybody of every religious stripe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are many beautiful aspects of religions, everybody's religions. They don't want to be unduly critical. But there's a problem with everybody's religion, and it's this. It has a tendency to give us a very, very false sense of security, religion. It has a tendency to give us a very false and fatal confidence in the fact that based on our religious affiliation alone, uh, God will grant us immunity from judgment. Sometimes religion does that. In fact, sometimes 
members of one religious group think when they stand before God to give account, they'll pass because of their religious affiliation, their attire, their garb, their rituals and practices, but non-members, those who are not part of that religious group, the profane or the infidels or however you refer to them, they are not going to stand well in the judgment, you see? See what religion has done? Every one of those religious groups believe all outsiders are destined to, for eternal perdition, uh, for, for, for a, a verdict of guilty when they stand before God, every one of them. Uh, but they would say, but not for us because of the hat we're wearing, because of the spiritual privileges we have, because of the special access to God we have, because of the way we bow, because of the way we chant, because of our liturgy, because of the foods we eat or do not eat. Because That's what religion has, has absolutely done. And, and, and so it gives people a sense, a false sense of immunity from having to be accountable to God. And Paul says, no, no, no. Paul says this in Romans. He says, you've got to get this right or you're going to be wrong. You're going to be dead wrong. Even though your religion has many beautiful, fascinating aspects, you've got to get this right. Paul says it's not true. Your group religious affiliation cannot lead to a verdict of case dismissed when you stand before God. In fact, a lot of religious people don't know this. We have to stand before God individually and all alone. When we stand before God, we can't say, but I am a Baptist. I am a Catholic. I am a Methodist. I am a Jew. I am Islamic. We can't, we, can't, we, we can't fall back on our group affiliation, no matter how rich the traditions of it may be. God said, I'm talking to you. You must give an account for how, how you have lived. You must do that. It's just you and me. And so religion is a kind of a camouflage is that reality. It makes us get this sense of being, being lost in, in our denomination or whatever it is, thinking that's what saves. My religious practices saves. The way I dress saves. What I eat and don't eat, that's what saves. I'm saved to the utter. No. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So religion gives a false and fatal confidence of immunity from God's judgment. And you know what else it does? Religion, sometimes it does this. It leads the member of a religious group to judge others. I just, I mean, just have to tell you, I just, you can perhaps relate to this. There's kind of a, a spiritual arrogance that sets in. Look at how we are. Look at how we're dressed. Look at what we know. Look at what we do. Look at how what we live. Look at how we comb our hair. Look at how we don't comb our hair. Look at the shoes we wear. Look at what we're willing to do to try to show God we're really serious about paying a price to win his favor. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't. So this religion kind of puffs up. It gives us a pride. It gives a dangerous kind of a kind of an arrogance. And with response to all this, Paul makes a statement. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read it to you. He says this, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. God's saying, <laughs> and Paul is saying, whether you're religious, whether you're not really, whatever your religion is, yeah, where do you get off thinking you can judge another and think God's not going to judge you when you do the same kind of 
kinds of and religion gives the false notion that you can judge because you're not going to be judged. Paul says, oh no, you're in for it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now I got to tell you something, it, makes, it saddens me. But I have to be honest. The particular religious group Paul is speaking about in the context of Romans 2 are my people, Jews. It does my heart good when I see people like Patty and Martin, Debbie and Brian and Weeds and everybody else standing for Israel. I think it's a biblical thing to do. But that doesn't mean we think Israel's right and innocent and all the rest. No way. We just think God's made a covenant and he's going to honor it in spite of them. But the religious group Paul is speaking of here are my people. Because my people think, because we've been so spiritually privileged, we're okay. But you're not. We're in, you're out. We're the us, you're the them. The them's not going to make it. Unless you become like us. But we're fine just being us. So my people have thought, still think today, based on our Jewishness and the privileges God has given us, not the least of which is the law of Moses. I mean, he gave that to Jews, right? Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, here's the law, do it. So we Jews think, whoa, we got it licked because we possess the law of Moses. He didn't give it to any other people group on earth. He gave it to us. And, and so my people think, isn't this terrible? Just having the law of Moses is the basis upon which we will be declared innocent by God. Not doing it, just having it. So Paul says this, verse 17, Romans 2 and on. If you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and my people do, and know his will, and my people claim to know the will of God, and to prove the things that are essential. We believe, we know how to live life, we know what's important, stuff like that. Being instructed out of the law. We are privy to the law of Moses. We teach it to our kids, it's been taught to us, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. We Jews think everyone's in darkness, we got to open people's eyes. A light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. We have the law. We have the word of God. He's expressed his mind, his heart. We have it. We possess it. We're the repository of divine transcendent truth. He gave it to us. We're the Jews. If you think, Paul says, you've got all this stuff going on, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Ugh. Knife in the chest. But it's true. Paul is saying, what? All these externals? You know, in synagogues, once I grew up and we saw one, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible are in scrolls. And they're in an ark. It's closed. It's opened on special occasions. You don't touch it with your hand. You're wearing a prayer shawl, a talit. You curl it up on your finger. You touch, you touch it, the talit to it, and you kiss it. You show respect to it. We think by osmosis, if I show respect to it, if I, if, if I, if I kiss it, somehow it's going to sink into my thick head and my hardened heart, and I'm going to be okay with God. Oh, no, the Bible says it's not hearers of the word, but doers that God is, God is looking for. So our religion of Judaism has given us a terrible, terrible 
dangerous and false sense of security in that just because we're Jews, we're okay, and because we're Jews, we look down on yous. It rhymes. We do. We do. And Paul is just cutting us to the quick, and he's saying, no, 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 no. He's saying that's not the way it works. He's saying, yeah, we have received, because he was a Jew also, we have received much, much spiritual privilege. We have received revelation from God. Gentiles have not. He gave us the law of Moses. That's true. But just possessing it is not sufficient to grant us immunity from the judgment, the justifiable judgment of God for our sin. God will judge all people, not on the basis of what we have, but on the basis of what we do with what we have. And so so Paul says this about God in verse 6 of the chapter, who will render to each person according to his deeds. That's the common denominator. It's not who has this, who has that, who has more spiritual privilege. How did you live? He will will judge us eternally in terms of our deeds. So the Jewish people have the law of Moses. The Gentiles do not. But God judges on the basis of what we do with what we have. And so the Jews, my people, will be judged with regard to how we responded to the law of Moses. Well, if that's the case, how how will Gentiles, on what basis will the Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses, on what basis will they be judged? Well, I'll read it to you. It's in verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, key word, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So you know what that's saying? Every one of us is a moral being. You know, you know why we're moral beings? We've been made by a very, very moral God. And his image is stamped upon us. We've been made to be in his image. We're not rocks. We're not trees. We're not amoral. He implanted in us, in our conscience, a sense of right and wrong. That's why burglars steal at night. They know it's not the thing to do. That's why people run away when there's a cop around. They don't need to be preached at about that. They don't need the, the, the scripture that says, thou shalt not steal. They don't need, ah, because God has implanted it on their hearts. And so when they do th- the things that are instinctively on their conscience, when they violate those things, that's enough basis upon which God can judge. So the Gentile can't say, hey, I'm off the hook. I didn't get the law. But God says, but you knew right from wrong. It's as if I inscribed the law, not on stone as with the Jews, not on stone tablets, but on your heart. And you ignored the voice of your own conscience. You committed adultery and you lied and you perjured yourself and you coveted and you stole. Did you not? Did you not? Guilty as charged, you see. Paul wants to lock us all up under sin. Why? Because until you see what a desperately lost sinner you are, you have no need for salvation and a Savior. You must be persuaded of your lostness before you could be saved. So that's what Paul's doing here, still at the beginning of Romans in in chapter 2. Now i got to tell you something. We are horrible, horrible sinners in every aspect of our being, 
So what, what can God do with us? I'll tell you what he can do. He can wipe us out. Who would argue the case that he wouldn't be right to do that? Good night. He makes us in his own image. We essentially spit in his face. We say, thank you for the capacity to commune with you. But I don't want it. I want to do my own thing. I'll be God. If it feels good, do it. I'll be the master of my I mean, God could wipe us all out, but he doesn't. I'll tell you how he responds to our sin. Verse 4. Or do you think lightly? of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Instead of destroying us, he wants to deliver us. And he chooses to deliver us by wooing us to himself, not with threats, not with imposition of his power, which he could, No, he wants to woo us to himself by manifesting his kindness, his patience, and his tolerance. That is meant to lead us to repentance. But what has it led many of us to? Not repentance, more sin. How? We say, uh, I'm sinning like crazy. I'm not being judged. I'm cool. This God who some of you tell me about, who's holy and is going to judge me, you know what I mean? What? I'm doing fine. I'm sinning without consequence. I'm getting away with murder. It really feels good. I'm going to do it. There's no reason for me not to. After all, God is patient. He is so kind, he's not going to judge me. What a distortion of the kindness of God, which is meant to lead us to repentance. Instead, some find permission to sin all the more. Isn't that terrible? But that's the case. Now, I want to tell you something. If we have not been drawn to God by his kindness, what will happen to us? It's this in verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. People are just accruing more reasons for God's justifiable wrath and his righteous judgment to befall them. And that's going to happen to religious people who are unrepentant as much as to unreligious people who are unrepentant. Why? Because verse 11 says, There's no partiality with God. Oh, my goodness. I showed you in Israel the diverse groups. You know, the humankind, different races and genders and religious affiliations, all the rest. It's a beautiful kind of mosaic, and uh, sometimes we divide over these differences, but God doesn't. He's impartial when it comes to this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all will be judged by a very holy God with whom We must make do. He's no respecter of persons. There is no partiality with God. Listen, Paul's point in all this is made very clear in verse 16. He says, there'll be a day when according to my gospel, not in the sense that he made it up. That's not what it means. My gospel, the one that saved me, the one that I preached, the one that I attached myself to, there'll be a day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And that's his point just to get us ready for that day, just to be prepared. It's inescapable. It's appointed for all men to die once, and after that comes, yeah, judgment, see? Mm. 
You know, I was reading this and I was just thinking, boy, I wish I had a more pleasant message. I like it when people laugh, have fun, smile. But there's no cause for smiling here at all. I got to tell you something. Paul calls this the gospel. I thought the gospel meant good news. This looks like bad news to me. We're dead, folks. How's that good news? Nobody's getting himself off the hook. No religious practice can get us off the hook with God. We have violated either his commandments given by Moses or his commandments inscribed on our hearts. We're dead. We have this in common. He's, he's an impartial judge of all of us who will all be judged. That doesn't sound like, how is this bad news part of the good news? But then it occurred to me, oh, my goodness. The bad news of my debt and my lostness and penalty of sin must precede the good news of the offer of a pardon and of forgiveness. That is absolutely meaningless to me if I don't think I need it. I must find out that I'm a lawbreaker first. I don't have to be the worst person in the world. We don't judge ourselves by one another. We judge ourselves by God's moral standards. I'm in trouble. So are you. <clears throat> I don't have a leg to stand on. Nothing. Have you ever lied? You're a liar. Have you ever taken that which is not yours? You're a thief. Have you ever desired something which cannot be righteously yours? You covet. <sighs> We're dead. I need to hear the bad news of my lostness before I'm willing to accept the fact of the good news of a Savior who came to redeem me from it all. So do you. I need to find out that religion, not mine, not yours, no denomination, no religious practice, nothing, not baptism, not circumcision, not anything like that can provide me or you or anybody with immunity from the judgment of a holy God. Beautiful rituals and ceremonies cannot do it because God judges the secrets of our hearts and our hearts are full of sin. You can dress it up. You can clean it up with all kinds of vestments and garbs and Mickey Mouse shirts, whatever you want to do. But God looks on the heart. My people, Jewish people, we have a rich religious history and many wonderful rituals and traditions. And we are very much subject to God's judgment in spite of it all. In fact, look at this. Verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Oh, my goodness. You talk about pain, penetrating pain. That's about my people right there. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles or among the surrounding nations because of you, because of the Jewish people. How is that? We claim intimacy, closeness, and access to God nobody else has. But how have we lived? We violate the commandments like everybody else. We degrade God as Lord of our lives. We look no different than anybody else. We commit the same sins. We have no distinctive lifestyle. People look at us, the chosen people, law of Moses, special access to God. You're just like me, even worse. It's true. The name of God is blasphemed because of you. Francis Schaeffer once said, by the way, this is not just for Jews, right? 
there's a lot of uh, professing Christians who sadly are doing the same thing, claiming to know Christ and yet living a life in front of onlookers that really, really blaspheme his name because that person's life is it doesn't reveal any transform, any transformation. Francis Schaeffer once said, when the man with the Bible treats it as an external thing only, it causes the man without the Bible to dishonor the God of the Bible. You know what I mean? So as disobedient Jews can cause the name of God to be blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, so too can disobedient Christians cause the name of God to be blasphemed amongst the unsaved. In Israel, our biggest job was to help people unlearn what they have learned about Christians. Because <laughs> every religious group I showed you, you say, <laughs> claims access to God. Many are anti-Semitic. Many are angry, cruel, separatistic, all the rest. Many so-called Christians have gone to the Holy Land and their cult groups. I won't mention any tonight because I'm practicing self-control. I went to the Holy Land, so I want to be a, a holy person. So I'm not going to name groups unless you ask me. You want to know? No, forget it. But be, there's many cult groups, you know, call themselves Christians over there and all the rest. And then many Christians go over there on tours, and they're obnoxious. Usually American Christians, just obnoxious. You know, you complain about everything. They're materialistic. They're unkind. They don't give a word of look and a touch. They give a piece of their mind. You know, ugly Americans kind of a deal. They forget who they represent. They forget they're probably going to be the only Jesus these people are going to see. So when we go over there and, and call ourselves Christians, they go, nah, been there, done that, don't want the shirt. You guys aren't any better than anybody else. We don't see anything in your life. So we actually have to go there and not call ourselves Christians. We call ourselves followers of the one from Nazareth. We just try to live the life. We say, oh, God, how could we be inhabited by your spirit and someone not see? Would you so fill us with your spirit that the fruit thereof, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control, that just shows so that people ask us, what makes you tick? What makes you tick? That's happened. We were on a boat. The boat captain, Daniel Carmel, is a, a fully a converted Jewish believer right now, applying his trade on the same body of water his Messiah walked on 2,000 years ago. He, he, he went to Israel. He was adopted, and he went to Israel on a quest to find his birth mother. And as part of his testimony, he said, I came looking for my birth mother, and I found my heavenly father. And you know how he did? Over years, years. And he just watched, and he, he saw Christians of all different stripes, sometimes on the boat on tours, but some, he said, were different. Some really seemed to be born again. And he said, I realized, I want their Messiah. And now he's a thoroughgoing Christian leading worship. You know, he won't call himself a Christian. He calls himself a follower of Jesus the Messiah. Same thing. So, folks, uh, the declaration of the gospel is indispensable. But a demonstration of its transforming power is just as important. To win the right to declare the gospel. To win the right to declare the gospel. So folks, uh, the point of this chapter is that God will judge everyone by the light they have. The light of the law in the case of the Jews. The light of conscience in the case of Gentiles. Ignorance of the law will not save the Gentile, and possession of the law will not save the Jew. Both are condemned before God, the righteous judge. 
All this is necessary. We must see how desperately lost we are. We must realize our sin in spite of any religious practice or affiliation in order to realize our desperate need for a Savior. Have you ever had a friend who's come up to you and say, hey, you got a minute? I got good news and bad news for you. What do you want to hear first? You know, and you choose. You know, Paul is essentially doing that, only he's not letting us choose. He's saying, I got good news and bad news, and you got to hear the bad news first. That's Romans 2. And then it continues, Lord willing, we'll, we'll be there next week into Romans 3. It takes a terrible picture of us. You'll stop complimenting yourself when you read the beginning of Romans 3. Boy, sin is a real problem. It affects every aspect of our being. We have to hear the bad news first. We have a sin nature which, in spite of any uh, show of morality and religiosity, is not sufficient to get us off of God's hook because he demands perfect conformity to his perfect moral standards. And who has the audacity to say, I can produce it? Bad news. I'm desperate and I'm lost. If only there's someone who could satisfy my dead for me. And there is Jesus. It is finished, paid in full. Cast all our sin behind his back. And the good news becomes beyond good. The bestest news ever. Because bad news has preceded it. And I think one of the reasons why so many in our society and elsewhere cheapen the good news of the gospel is that they're not persuaded of their lostness. They think an act of charity or humanitarian effort or philanthropy or going to church Christmas and Easter or the synagogue on Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, that's enough. Helping old ladies across the street, putting a couple shekels in the offering plate, that's all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift. Being justified as a gift through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. In Israel, we said Yeshua. His beautiful name is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Do you know him? Do you realize how important, how critical in this day more than ever. Don't leave here without establishing by your expression of faith in the totality of his sacrifice for your sin. Don't leave here without saying no more bad news, just the good news of the penalty of my sin being paid for by the only one who could, the Son of God. And if you are possessed already by his spirit, I say this to me just as I say it to you, we must not blaspheme, cause the name of God to be blasphemed amongst unsaved people by the lifestyle we live. They will judge our God by the way we live. We don't need more Christians we need more Christians living a distinctively Christian life to win an increasingly lost world. That's why we need church. We want to encourage each other to live the life, right? I can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. We get too worldly. It's very important to come to church, be with one another, raise the bar. We are ambassadors for Christ. We could do better.
Lord Jesus, it's our heart's desire to represent you better. Our salvation doesn't hinge on it. That's part of the good news. Our salvation from beginning to end is a function of your goodness, not our own. Your sacrifice, your redemptive work. However, the salvation of others is a function of the extent to which we represent you. We're witnesses. Make us to be expert witnesses. Witnesses with character. Witnesses whose lives, whose walk match our talk. Oh God, would you give us the privilege of having lives that demand a question? Would you bring people to us who, because of our distinctively Christian life, see a hope that is in us and ask about it? And then, God, for the ones here with us tonight, thank you for them, by the way, who just have not established this bond yet, who just haven't received your forgiveness for sin yet. Oh, God, I pray they'd spend some time with us before they leave tonight. This in the power of your Holy Spirit that they might be new, converted, no longer on the outs, but a son or a daughter of God. Oh God, thank you for Romans chapter 2. Thank you for your desire for us to be right about this so that we will not be wrong. Thank you for the beautiful aspects of religion, but thank you for warning us about the danger of a fatal confidence in religion as the source of salvation. It has to be a personal relationship with you, the Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.